Hello, everyone. Joel Junker here with another episode of the Cameron Brooks podcast, Above and Beyond. In this episode, I interview Cameron Brooks alumnus from 2001, former Army officer Matt Bellavo, who is the Chief Human Resources Officer of Sara Lee Frozen Bakery. Matt uh, posted several months ago on LinkedIn uh, a article about his 20 years working in business, and that catalyzed this conversation about the lessons that he's learned both in his transition from the military to the business world, as well as how he navigated uh, and prepared and uh, planned for his career throughout the last 20 years. Additionally, we got into some excellent topics about the future of work and what that looks like post the COVID environment, as well as some tips and advice on leading through crucible events uh, like the, the COVID pandemic and how his military officer background has helped him be that steadfast leader uh, during the pandemic uh, for the people at Sarah Lee Frozen Bakery. I hope you enjoy the podcast and learn a lot from Matt's incredible insight. Hi, Matt. It's great to have you on the podcast. Appreciate you being here. Um, it's like we before we started the recording, that's just probably been uh, 15 years since we've chatted. Uh, but obviously, remember you very well um, from from your career conference. Um, go ahead. Well, thanks, Joel. No, I appreciate the opportunity to to be here today, uh, and it's definitely good to to see you again and have the chance to catch up in what, what's almost like being in person uh, with a with a video call. <laughs> right. It's kind of like the new the new version of what in person is. Um, in which I'd love to chat with you a little bit about, you know, workforce, what that looks like post-COVID as we get it from your perspective as a chief human resources officer. Um, but, you know, we, before we got started, we talked about how the, 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 this came about, this podcast. You, you posted um, on your LinkedIn profile um, your um, kind of your 20th anniversary shout out to a whole bunch of people which was just a great, great post. And uh, you mentioned us, which we, we thank you for that. Um, so I'm curious, you know, this is one thing that you, you wrote about. Uh, you know, I walked through the doors of General Mills almost 20 years ago as a career field, human resources that I never considered in an industry that I'd never worked in, in a location that was completely foreign to me. And at that moment, I had no idea what the future had in store for me. All I knew was that I had been given an opportunity and was going to figure out how to make the most of it. I mean, fast forward 20 years later, and now you're the Chief Human Resources Officer of Sarah Lee Frozen Bakery. Did you ever think that that would be a possibility 20 years ago? You know, not initially. I mean, my focus, you know, 20 years ago was just on making the transition uh, you know, from uh, military life to the uh, corporate world and figuring out you know, what was it uh, that I was going to do in the corporate world? I mean, I felt like I could do a lot of things, but wasn't sure exactly what the right thing was going to be. And going through the, the career conference was you know, certainly really helpful uh, in making that transition. But in, in the early days of the career, it was just figuring out, you know, how do I be, be good at this thing <laughs> that I have walked into? Um, and the idea of making it to the C-suite, at least early on, was, was not really part of my thinking. Yeah, it's, uh, I think that's probably an overwhelming thought for, I don't know, what were you, 27, 28? 
when you were first? Uh, I was probably 25 going on 26. Yeah, right, right, That's young. 2001, yes, very young. Yeah, and I was 26, so I don't think I was ever really thinking about uh, what my role was going to be at Cameron Brooks 22 years later, so I can do that. Yeah, I think one of the things I'd love to crack on, crack a kind of a, the the paradigm early here in this conversation. You know, I think people think of human resources as like recruiting. Mm. Oh, they think of HR as recruiting. I know certainly that's part of that, um, but I think there's a lot of misperceptions of HR. Um, when you're if, when you're at like a cocktail party or a class reunion or whatever it is, what's kind of like your one to two minute pitch elevator speech of this is what I do as a chief human resources officer of what HR does and why it's important. Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And interestingly enough, the, the answer that I have uh, kind of used and adapted over the years um, came from, and I can't remember who it was, but, you know, it actually came from uh, the Cameron Brooks team when I was at the career conference because I had been interviewing uh, at all these companies on my dance card and somebody came to me and said, Hey, there's a guy here named Mark Bailey. He runs talent acquisition at General Mills. He wants to talk to you about, you know, their HR program. And I remember saying, seems like a great company. I interviewed with him yesterday for an ops job, but what on earth does HR do? You know, I'd had a couple of internships in college, so I kind of got recruiting, but I never saw, you know, HR after day one at any of the places that I worked. Um, and the answer that I got in return was, well, the, uh, um, the strategic role of HR, especially in a consumer packaged goods company, uh, is to make sure that you understand what the businesses are trying to accomplish, which is typically um, market penetration, growing the PL, you know, launching new products, solving consumer problems, and taking an understanding of that and uh, making sure that you know, you're attracting, developing, deploying, and retaining talent collectively and individually across the organization in a way that allows the business to achieve their goals. And my response to that was, oh, it's like logistics with people. Uh, and it's, well, sort of, you're on the right track, but it's a little more complicated or more nuanced uh, than that. But I found that to be, you know, incredibly true because, you know, and especially now after having spent 20 years in, in CPG, you know, we've really got two, um, you know, main uh, sources of equity or value, you know, in a company, you've got your brands, you know, and you've got your human capital. And that strategic role of, of HR and making sure that human capital is basically at the right place at the right time with the right skill set to allow, you know, those who own the, the brands, your, your marketers and sales teams and others to, um, to accomplish the business objectives that they have. There's certainly a lot more to it in different parts of HR, but, you know, that to me, that is the, the essence of, of what we do in HR. Yeah, I love your, uh, really appreciate your it's like logistics, um, yeah, more nuanced, of course. It's when I explain to, you know, every now and then we get an adjutant general or personnel officer that's transitioning, and it is harder for them to communicate uh, in interviews to companies of what they've done in the military because sometimes companies look at it, what they've done is more administrative. Mm -hmm. And when I'm trying to teach them how to, you know, communicate their backgrounds. A lot of times they say is you're really no different than that logistics officer where they've got to get the, these specific materials to the right place at the right time so that they can accomplish the mission. They've got to make sure that they've got the right people with the right skill set 
um, at the right place that are deployable and all the things that go along the way, no different than maintenance, if you will, yeah. uh, in some ways, so that the commander, all they have to do is focus on getting that, that mission done. So great. I'm glad you said that. I think this will really help, especially those personnel officers that we occasionally come across on how to market their background, not just to HR jobs, but to other types of positions out there as well. Um, what, what was that, what some of the things you had to adjust to, as you said, like, what is HR? You're getting, I think you're, you're getting out of the military, going to General Mills. So you're leaving an industry defense, going to business, going from army to consumer packaged goods, going from operations to HR. What was that like the first couple of years trying to adapt and to learn and, as you said, make that transition? Because the transition is so much more than just, hey, I'm now at General Mills in Golden Valley and I'm working. No, you're completely right. And, you know, the way I think about it um, is it's actually you're making more than one transition. You're making multiple transitions at the same time because you're going from regardless of your branch, you're going from military to civilian life. You know, which is a huge transition when you're working, you know, in the military, um, you know, it's got its own unique culture. Um, it's very process driven. And, you know, in many ways, the the organizational structure, you know, is very clear. You know, you understand the hierarchy and the norms associated with that, you know, right away, mostly because, you know, everyone's got their rank on their collar or sleeve. So the organizational chart in many ways is visible uh, no matter where you are, you know, in the world, um, you know, and additionally, there is there is enough commonality, regardless of your function, whether you're, you know, an armor officer, um, you're on a, a ship, you're, you're part of maybe like an aircraft maintenance crew, you can go anywhere in the world and your external environment might be different, but how you do your job and the resources and processes are, are generally the same. That is not true you know, in the civilian life. So there is that huge transition that comes with that. And part of it is change in identity. You know, when people ask you what you do, you know, when you're in the uh, the military, you're like, you know, I protect democracy. You know, it's it's a very lofty thing in some ways, but it is, it is true. And it puts a certain, you know, I, I felt like I just stood up straighter, you know, when I said that. Um, the you know it, it's different uh, in terms of identity when you when you transition to the civilian world. Sometimes, depending on the nature of what you do, or the company you work for, um, it might be hard to describe. You know, if you work in you know financial services or something else. So there's there's this change in identity of who you are and how you talk about yourself. That is one transition. The second transition is you know you're figuring out a new, in many ways, functional area or a different set of functional skills. You know, even if you were doing something similar to your role in the military, and the likelihood is that you're not, you know, in my case, I had to figure out, okay, what does, you know, going into my first role as a, um, you know, an HR business partner or associate HR manager, whatever they called it at the time, you know, in a manufacturing plant, you know, what was my job, you know, in terms of, you know, how do I do that? I had to learn how to, you know, how do you recruit? How do you interview? How do you make hiring decisions? How do you help? functional leaders with organizational design? Um, how do you, you know, help resolve employee relations or labor relations issues? There's a whole lot of functional stuff that you have to figure out and that doesn't happen overnight. That transition can actually feel like several years. And at some point you move from transition to, wow, this is all foreign to, I have a base of knowledge and I'm just building on it. But that is a transition as well. 
And the third transition, you know, I would say is whatever company you go to, they have their own unique culture. They have their own norms and expectations and ways of doing things. And many times those are, you know, unwritten. So using an example, when I joined General Mills, um, the phrase I heard a lot was, this is a relationship-based organization. You get stuff done based on who you know. And it took me a while to, to figure out, like, what did that really mean? You know, and at the time, um, you know, General Mills was uh, made up of, uh, you know, mostly tenured employees wherever you went. You know, you, it was not common, uncommon to meet someone who'd been there 15, 25 30 or more years. I used to joke, I didn't feel like I got off of probation until I had been there a decade. Uh, and it takes a while to figure out how to build those relationships and you know how to get stuff done through them, whether it's work or managing your own career path. That was one thing that was just unique to General Mills. I'm sure that you know any company you go to is gonna have something that is unique about their culture and norms that is a transition and takes a while to figure out. So long way of saying, I think it's not just one transition. There's usually three transitions you're making and they don't, they overlap at the beginning, but they don't all last the same amount of time. It, did you, did you underestimate or have an idea that it would be that, that tra transition would be that complex? Yeah, I don't think I appreciated it or anticipated it. And part of that, too, is I didn't I don't think I understood at the time. And in hindsight, I can see it that that first year, you know, can be one of where you're very vulnerable, you know, as you're making those transitions. And I was fortunate that, um, you know, my manager during that that first year was someone who took the time uh, to invest uh, in me and help me through at least some of the functional pieces and the cultural pieces of what it meant to work in HR at General Mills. And I was, I was fortunate to work for a great uh, leader. In fact, that person today uh, is the chief HR officer for Potbelly Sandwiches. Oh, nice. Uh, one of the largest and fastest growing, you know, quick serve restaurant chains in the US. So um, I, to answer your question, no, I, I don't think I understood or appreciated just the, uh, um, you know, the complexities of that transition in the first year. And, and I say that, and I don't, I, I think that's very hard to, for any junior officer to recognize the complexities of it. I think most oversimplify the transition, um, meaning I'm going to be out. There's a day that I stop getting paid. What is most important? I need to keep getting a paycheck. Mm -hmm. um, I need to make sure I have a job lined up and, um, and it's in a decent location that I'm going to enjoy living. Once I get those checked, hey, work is work. <laughs> um, I think there's a, I mean, I might be oversimplifying that thought process, but I think that 22 years of this, I think even that's what I was thinking at first when I get got out, but there's, it's the norms of civilian versus the military, the norms of your company, the norms of your functional mm -hmm. career field are so different. And I think that complexity with, you have a lot more freedom in choice. Mm -hmm. you, you have more free time. Uh, generally speaking, of what to do with that, more flexibility and what, what and how you get things done. So I think it is a little bit more difficult. It is. And one of the things that, that helped me out was I had a network, um, you know, of friends and colleagues from, you know, my time in the Army, some that were the same year group, some that were maybe a year group or two ahead. Um, so some of them had made the transition. Some of us were making it at the same time. And I remember being on the phone a lot with them uh, or over email, or in some cases, if they lived a couple hours away, finding time to get together um, and just, you know, have someone, uh, it was it was important to have someone to 
talk to and sometimes just commiserate with who had the shared background, um, you know, of that time, you know, in the military and who was either recently going through it or going through it at the same time, that support network uh, of peers was, was really important. Yeah, that's good. So that's a good piece of advice. Make sure you have a support network, either internally or externally. We've been doing a little bit more, quite a bit more of that here at Cameron Brooks recently. We're having more program check-in conversations with our alum post-placement. You know, the, the pandemic has made, I think, the transition even more complex uh, for people. Uh, I think just in general, life is more complex. We're seeing it with the Olympics right now, for, for mm. example, the complexity and the challenge of, of that. But a lot of people starting remotely, those types of things. So we're having more of those program check-ins. Um, kind of going to the, the next piece, going back to this post that you had on, uh, on LinkedIn, um, your dad had a quote about HR, um, but, he, but he also had like a really good piece of advice. Get, get on board with a great company and which General Mills is and, and a transition, transfer over to, and he mentioned finance is what you put in the article. Um, I think your dad was even at your career conference with you. If I remember. He was. Because <laughs> I, I remember, I, I think I met with you guys at the end of the career conference to give you your, your feedback. So um, your dad gives you that advice. Did you originally intend to follow his advice, just get into HR and go navigate to something else? You know, I had it in the back of my mind, um, you know, but I also realized, you know, pretty quickly that, you know, one year um, of good work in a function was not necessarily going to be, you know, enough. Uh, I would not wouldn't have had enough equity built up, you know, to really ask to be transferred into another part of the organization. And what I what I hadn't thought about uh, until later, I kind of sensed it at the time. Um, but, you know, when a company, especially like a General Mills, hires you into a specific career program, you know, you're not just filling a job, you're part of a talent pipeline, and they're expecting you to, you know, be in that pipeline and grow and develop and, you know, be able to go into to future roles for them and asking to go be part of a different functions pipeline. Um, one may not align with their expectations and there may not be room in that other pipeline. Uh, I also realized, too, that, you know, after a year in HR, I'd learned a lot, but still had a lot to learn and felt like I needed to build up a base of something um, uh, in terms of, you know, developing some functional competence or expertise. What was interesting though, like my first, not after my first year, but maybe around like my third or fourth year at Mills in the context of development discussions or career discussions, um, you know, either with, you know, my manager or other leaders in the HR function, people started to ask me, Hey, you they'd say something like, Hey, you have an interesting background. You know, would you like to do something besides HR? And my initial thought process was, well, am I not doing this HR stuff well, <laughs> trying to, you know, move me to a different area? And it was, no, um, uh, you're doing fine. Uh, it's just, we see you, have, you know, you've built up this, uh, this body of work. We see what you're capable of. You, there are different things you, we think you could do within the organization. And, you know, at the time it was really tempting, but I also realized that, you know, after three or four years in a function and getting promoted one or two times, you know, I could start to see a career path emerging and I was enjoying the work that, that I was doing. And I wasn't quite sure if going and doing something else was going to, you know, slow me down, set me back. So my answer was, you know what, it's, I appreciate the offer. I might like to try something different at some point. I'm not sure what different, what type of different opportunity I would like. If I ever figure it out, you know, I, I will let you know. Uh, interestingly enough, 
a um, couple years uh, later, I think I'd been at Mills probably about seven years at this point, uh, had gotten sponsored to go back to grad school while I was working. And in the process of getting my MBA, thought that, hey, like I, I think I might like to do something different. I'm uh, surrounded by all these like really talented people in my MBA program from different functional areas. Uh, a lot of them seem to be on the path to general management. I think that's something I would like to do. Uh, at a company like General Mills, that means brand management. So uh, I kind of went back and said, hey, remember the, that question you kept asking me? I, I think I figured out what I want to do. I think I'd like to go into to brand management and be a marketer. And they gave me the opportunity to do that for a year. And it was the most miserable year I ever had in my life. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I got exactly what I asked for. But what I hadn't you know, anticipated, going back to your point about making transitions, was you know, at this point, I'd been at Mills for seven years. I knew how to operate. I knew how to be successful. I was good at doing my HR role. Suddenly, I'm being placed in a role as a marketer where I didn't necessarily, the, the tools I had in my toolkit didn't fit for the job that I was doing, yet I was doing it in an environment where I was used to knowing how to operate. So it felt very, uh, you know, uncomfortable. Uh, it was really challenging. And the things that I thought um, I wanted to do um, for, with respect to a general management role were not the things that a first year marketer does. You know, it is the foundation to get there, you know, over time. So I learned an incredible amount about, you know, what it takes to run a business, how you make strategic investment decisions, what it means to, to run a PL. And I came to this realization that, you know what, I could take this experience and go back to HR. And this was actually the first time I thought about, you know, being a CHRO. Uh, and because I looked up at the person who was running HR, General Mills at the time, and said, like, what does that person do? And the more I thought about it and realized it's, it's not just leading the HR function. When you are part of a CEO's, you know, direct reports, you're responsible for running an enterprise. You have responsibilities that go beyond just being the leader of your function. And there is a, a, a great level of general management that comes into a role like that, whether or not you own a PL or a profit and loss statement. And I, I, it kind of dawned on me that I could take this experience in marketing, go back to HR and actually be a better HR leader, having spent time running a business and walking in the shoes of those that I support and use that as a path to, to get to the C-suite and be ahead of HR. So, I think there's a lot of great uh, pearls of wisdom in there. One is uh, it's, there, there is, there are opportunities to start in a functional area and pivot is probably, but it's probably going to avail themselves at the three or four year mark, um, which is really the transition mark that we say, you know, cause you said you've got these, all these different buckets of transition. You got the company, you got the functional, you got your identity. We say it takes that three, four year point. That's when those other functional areas avail themselves to you and they could continue to avail themselves in, in the future. Um, and then I think the second thing that you pointed out, companies are going to invest in you. They, like you said, General Mills sent you back uh, for your MBA and, um, and then gave you an opportunity to, to move. And you better were a good, more than a good performer um, to be able to do that and then to pivot back to HR. So lots of really good nuggets in there uh, for, for our listeners. Um, so how would you say... Um, you know, you mentioned a little bit of this in the beginning, you know, just a moment ago, I looked up at the C-suite and said, hey, I started getting an idea. That's where I want to do. What, what are some of the, how do you get there, Matt? What, what does it take? And it may, it may not avail themselves to everybody to get to the C-suite, kind of depends on the company and things like that. But 
you know, I think a lot of majority of people we, we work with are aspirational. I mean, they mm-hmm. aspire to high levels of leadership positions and type A. What, what would your advice be or what did you do to, to get to where you are? Yeah, I would say, Joel, I think there's there's three things that are the, the key to, to getting there. And the, the, these are my thoughts. Um, others may feel differently, but these are the things that I have seen and observed, um, you know, having been in, you know, a C-suite role for the last seven years now. Uh, the first one is you've got to develop functional mastery and competence, you know, for your functional area, whether it's finance, marketing, HR, et cetera. Because if you're in the C-suite, you're the leader, you know, of your function. And your job isn't to, you know, have all the answers or know everything there is to know about, you know, finance, but you have to have enough experience and expertise to ask the right questions, because uh, that is a big part, you know, of your job as a leader at that level. It's someone out in the organization has an answer to the, the question or the problem that you're trying to solve. You have to know where to go look and penetrate uh, to get there. The second thing is you have to be an enterprise thinker, you know, because in addition to leading your function, you're part of a team that makes up the CEO's direct reports. And as a group, you're responsible for running your company and you've got to understand the cross-functional and the up and downstream uh, impacts of the decisions that you make, you know, as a group. So you have to have the ability to think across the enterprise. And then lastly, you need someone to pull you up. You're not going to make it to that level, you know, on your own. And there's two things that, you know, you need uh, throughout your career, which are, I think mentorship and sponsorship, which are really two different things. And sometimes, you know, people tend to use them synonymously. You know, mentors are people that help you uh, grow and develop by sharing uh, the benefit of their experience uh, and help you um, learn or get exposure to things or maybe not make the same mistakes, you know, that they did. And that is an important part of your growth and development, not just as a leader early in your career, but across your, your whole career. So that's mentorship. Sponsorship, though, is someone who's pulling you up or advocating for you and advocating for you from a position that they're able to influence decisions, you know, about careers. Um, You know, it might be tempting to think that, well, my body of work should speak for itself. But the reality is, whether it's a board making a decision about who's going into the C-suite or a CEO hiring a direct report, or even at more senior level jobs, kind of once you get past the manager level in an organization to that director and above, you know, someone is in the room making those decisions and you need someone there who is advocating or sponsoring, you know, you uh, to go into a role. Uh, so those are those are the three things I'd say that, you know, are critical to making it to the C-suite level. Um, you know, we get a lot of uh, feedback from our uh, alum that they would like more uh, insight, uh, you know, and, and development on how to manage your career progression. And... What would be your advice on, not so much getting to the C-suite, but planning and thinking about your career for five, 10 years out? Uh, we could probably spend a whole hour on this alone, um, but any, you know, three, four minute kind of tip on how to manage, because obviously you also have probably help people along the way mm-hmm. as an HR person sit down and map out careers. You also help managers figure out where people should go and how, what's some of the, the best practices uh, for let's say that our alum might, that, that might be listening to this, that if they're in year three, four, five of their career, what should they be doing to map out and, and, and prepare for a career progression over the next five, 10 years? Yeah, so a, a great question. A, a couple of things that, that I would say is, you know, one, 
know, I encourage people, even though the term gets used all the time, is not to think about your career as a ladder. Um, and the reason I say that is, you know, when you talk about the term career ladder, it implies, you know, a singular direction up uh, and a certain level of momentum. How fast am I moving up? You know, the reality is, I think, you know, career development is more of, you know, more of a lattice. You know, it is not just up. It might be lateral move side to side. It might be moving into a different functional area. And the way I, th I encourage people to practically think about that is, you know, how do you curate enough different experiences that will eventually, you know, allow you, you know, to, to get to the place that, that you want to be? So a personal example I had had uh, two field assignments and plans in pretty quick succession at General Mills. My third role was uh, at their corporate headquarters. As I was finishing that assignment, I, I asked to go back to the field uh, one more time. And a lot of my peers thought I was crazy. It was, hey, you've made it to headquarters. You know, don't leave headquarters and, and go back to the field. Like this is where, you know, the action is. Um, but I wanted to go back and get the experience of actually being uh, an HR manager, you know, at a large plant because I, uh, those were the jobs where you got to manage the most amount of direct reports. You know, you were part of a leadership team that was responsible for, you know, the, the production, you know, of a site. It's a really good um, development experience. And it was one that I wanted to, to go get. And in the short term, you know, it might've slowed down my progression a little bit, you know, but in the long term, I knew if I didn't get that experience at that time, I would never have that, the opportunity to, to do so again. So think about how do you curate, you know, experiences that are, um, that are gonna be helpful to you. Cause at the end of the day, you know, uh, your, your career is yours. It is tempting, you know, to compare your career to, to other people. Um, but the, um, um, but, but, but it's your own. Um, so that's, that's one thing I would say. You know, the other thing I'd say with um, in terms of managing your career and thinking about things is something I wasn't quite prepared for when I went to, you know, General Mills. And I'm sure it's like this at other I know it's like this at other very career centric um, organizations where every function has their own career path and own, you know, development um, uh, framework. You end up spending a lot of mental and emotional bandwidth on managing your career and it's not always productive. Um, you know, you, you'll see people and peers who make a, we, at General Mills, we used to joke and call it the lunch circuit. You know, who, who are you having lunch with, you know, that week in the cafeteria and be like, oh, that person's meeting with the VP of so-and-so and they must be in line for, for that job. I haven't met with them in a while. I, I need to go do that. And it's not that relationships and things aren't important, but you can, it's easy to get wrapped up in spending more time managing your career than actually doing uh, your work. Uh, so you've got to figure out how to how to balance both. It's really good, really good uh, insight there about, I think sometimes they say it's who you know. Certainly you mentioned that earlier, you have people that pull you up, but there's also this other piece that you have to have these experiences, uh, different complexity that prepare you for those roles. Even though people want to pull you up, uh, good organizations will only pull you up if you have um, you've been through the school of hard knocks in certain <laughs> different ways, which is it really leads into this next question. You did a podcast with the HR playbook, which we talked about just before getting on here, which was a former coworker at, I think you said at general mills that started that in the podcast, you talked about the, um, having confidence as a leader amid the COVID crazy. And I think, you know, we're slipping backwards here a little bit right now as we're recording this to this COVID and, 
you know, who knows where we're going with uh, the, the uptick. And so we might be in for another, a little bit of a bumpy ride for another year or so. But you mentioned that COVID was a crucible for all leaders. Um, how did you make it through that, that crucible experience? And what were some of your, your two or three lessons that you learned through this, this pandemic? Yeah, you know, I have probably thought and reflected more on, um, you know, my military experience in the Army the past 18 months uh, than I have in a while, um, because a lot of dealing with COVID felt like being on a deployment, um, you know, a highly kinetic environment, a lot of uncertainty, every day brings something new, making decisions with imperfect information, uh, taking care of people, uh, balancing you know, running our plants with keeping people's, you know, health safe. Uh, a lot of that, and it's interesting, we, we do a, a monthly town hall that we, we broadcast out to all our sites. And we had our most recent one about a week or two ago. And I was sharing some reflections on what we've learned, you know, as an organization uh, and how we got through COVID. And I, I talked about how it felt like a, a deployment. Uh, but what I also talked about was as this comes to an end and, you're right, there is this uptick and we'll see what, what, what happens over the next six months. But at some point, you know, COVID will be more in the rearview mirror than it is in front of us. And I think it's important um, to ensure that we take what we have learned uh, from that experience and continue to apply it. And I know within our organization, you know, the two things that I feel like we have really gotten better at are agility, you know, and persistence. You know, agility in terms of, I talked about before, like making decisions with imperfect information, reacting to, you know, maybe guidance from the CDC or a state or local authority on, you know, think measures that you have to take in the workplace to protect people and how to, you know, interpret them and make decisions on the fly. Agility has been something we've gotten much better at as a company the past 18 months, you know, and persistence. You know, one of my favorite quotes is generally attributed to Winston Churchill, who said, you know, if you're going through hell, keep going. Uh, and that is something that uh, I think we've all thought about, you know, the, the last 18 months, you know, the ability to grind uh, and not just yourself, but to to motivate others uh, to get through this experience has, has been critical. And I think that's something, uh, you know, that, that ex-military officers certainly, you know, help bring to the table. And the last thing I'd say is that, you know, the role of the leader has never been more important uh, than it has been in a crisis. And I know that, you know, to people with our background, that seems, you know, very logical, but not every leader in an organization is going to have the experience, or at least pre-COVID, of going through anything that remotely resembled a pandemic. Not everyone's been, you know, on a deployment to the Balkans, the desert, to, you know, a high-risk environment. Um, so that role of the leader has become, I think, increasingly more important. And uh, also what employees need from their leaders during times of a crisis. And what we've talked about in our, in our company is there's two things that employees need most from leaders to get through something like this. They need to know that you care about them and that you're going to follow through. You know, you, you have to care about me as a person. I have to know that my leaders care about me because they're asking me to do something that, you know, maybe some days is not what I want to do, come to work you know, in a pandemic and do my job with a lot of personal protective equipment on and, you know, that you're going to follow through, you're going to do what you say, you know, your actions are going to show or reinforce, you know, that you do care for me. Those are two, those are two basic leadership, you know, principles that I think they, they teach you and, you know, they, they teach you that well before, you know, you get commissioned, 
but you'd be surprising. Uh, you'd be surprised at how that is not always, you know, part of the leadership development playbook uh, at a lot of organizations. You know, it comes back to what we taught. They always taught us in the military, which I still haven't quite understood exactly what what it always means. People first, uh, people first, mission always. always. <laughs> but I think the the point that I've always taken in there is that it is that you've got to keep your mission in front of you and you're not going to get there without bringing the people along and making them a priority, whether it be care about them, set the example, following through. Um, I think that that statement can mean a lot of different things, but in the end, the mission is, is priority and, but the people are equally a priority, which is why the, 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 uh, the chief human resources officer has a seat at the table as you said, with the executive team, with the, with the uh, overseeing the entire enterprise, as you mentioned, it's something like Sarah Lee Frozen Bakery. It's, you got your brands, it's super valuable, but they mean nothing without all the people uh, that are doing that. No, you, you, we've talked about people, talked about COVID. It's a great, another really good segue into this. You have some visibility on your end, I, I would think, from your perspective of a shift in, you know, what's this going to, what's the work work and life going to look like post-pandemic? I mean, what do you personally see happening out there uh, from what what's, what's work going to look like in the future? I think work is going to look dramatically different uh, than what it has been traditionally. I think the, the toothpaste is out of the tube on things like remote work, and it's not going back in. Um, I think you'll see, and we're doing this ourselves, you know, a lot more companies uh, take a hybrid approach to remote work in their corporate offices and certainly professional services environments uh, to offer some level of, you know, flexibility to work remote or, you know, in the office. And there's probably a couple of reasons uh, that companies might do it. One, um, well, I think we've all learned this past year of having to work and run companies fully remote at times that it can be done but it is far from optimal, you know, and we are much better in terms of the work we do, the relationships we have, like when we are, you know, physically together. But we've also recognized that, you know what, having the flexibility to work remotely one to two days a week, you know, it promotes a lot of work-life balance, you know, for people's lives. And at the end of the day, you know, it's about the results uh, that people are getting. It's not necessarily where they are. It doesn't lend itself to, you know, every job, you know, you can't run a cereal plant you know, from, from home, like people have to be in, you know, right. operating equipment. Um, so I can tell you what we're doing, you know, at Sarah Lee, and we've actually been piloting this for a while because we have had, um, you know, our corporate re uh, offices reopened on a voluntary basis for some time while still allowing people the option of full remote work. After Labor Day, you know, we are ending uh, full remote work as an option and asking people to, to be in the office at least 50% of the time but giving them the flexibility between, you know, employees and their managers and within teams to figure out what is the best way uh, for them to do that. We, we talked about designating core days uh, of, you know, being in the office and, you know, uh, dedicated remote days. But then we looked at like, how does work get done? And every function has a different rhythm to it. Um, so, you know, and, and our approach has always been um, probably a little less paternalistic, you know, a little less controlling as a company to give people the flexibility to figure out, you know, what is going to work best for them. I talked to a lot of other uh, CHROs in the Chicagoland area uh, and, and across the, the countries through some different, you know, networking groups that I'm in. 
Uh, and I saw a statistic, I think it was yesterday, on a survey that was done from 300 CHROs that about 76% of their companies are going to be doing something just like what I described. And I think in many ways, you know, as an employer, we're going to be forced to take that approach, whether we wanted to or not, because the talent market is such that people have options. You know, this is the, we've continued to hire people, you know, throughout the, the pandemic. And, you know, we are now getting questions from people of, um, hey, is full remote work an option or is partial remote work, you know, an option? Because I'm getting these options from, from other employers that I'm talking to. So I think any employer that is trying to just go back to the way life was in December of 2019 in terms of, you know, our approach to doing work is actually going to be at a competitive disadvantage. So just, it's, I have to laugh because uh, we had somebody that applied to, to, to work for us. And well, we have hired a couple of uh, people to work remotely, uh, one in Nashville, one out of Dallas. And we expanded our reach for people to work for us because we wanted a different skill set than we can get here in the hill country of Texas. We're in a town of 10,000 people. Mm. Well, I've got a phenomenal team, you know, our caliber and the, the, uh, what we're looking for. It's a very small pool to get people for some of the roles that to be in the office. So we expanded it, actually hired two people that are spouses of our alum mm. that were in the, working for us. But so we had already been doing this. We had somebody apply to us, Matt, and uh, that was like out of Houston or something like that. And uh, I had one of my team members screen her and they, she asked her, what, what's, um, what, what's causing you to move to Fredericksburg, Texas? And it was like, I'm not moving to Fredericksburg, Texas. <laughs> I think there was an assumption that we, we, everybody's moving to remote work. And I was like, well, yeah, I guess that, that, that we should probably be looking at. People will start applying to us, not even thinking that they're moving here that we may have uh, this, this position to, to do that. You, you mentioned something that was key though, and I've seen this in the Wall Street Journal. This has bounced back and forth, I think, um, you know, between, hey, we're going to remote work to, whoa, it's time to come back in the office. And you mentioned, well, it's hard to have all because there's a level of collaboration that just needs to be done in person. Can you expand on kind of what your experience has been and the why behind that? Because I, I agree, but there's a lot of people that dissent on that. Do you really need to be working in the same office? Can't you just do it via video? But I'm old school. I like to have at least people in the office part of the time to have those relationships. Yeah, you know, the way that uh, we have thought about it is, you know, there is there's a level of what I'll call informal productivity that happens when people are together in the office, you know, and it takes the form of something like, somebody drops by my office and says, hey, do you have like two minutes where we can talk about something? Or, you know, something will come up and I can quickly go, you know, grab some of my team, stand around a whiteboard, work out a problem. There are ways to replicate that in Zoom or Teams or other medium, but you lose some of the spontaneousness and it has to become more programmed, which reduces the likelihood that it may not happen. Or what we have noticed is you have those ideas and you're either IMing or texting people or you're saving it on a list for when you have your next update. And then the relationship becomes very transactional. Like we have noticed, you know, in the, we have not, we were full remote for a period of time. We've had some, you know, voluntary back and forth in the office for folks, but our relationships have become more transactional. 
over the last 18 months. It is just about what do I need to get the job done, which quite honestly, like, isn't enough. You know, the transactional nature of relationship, especially, you know, we're a smaller organization, you know, about 150 people corporately, like every single person matters. And if you're not able to have that, that in person, uh, you know, I believe my CEO feels the same way that, you know, we're just not as productive. And I would have to imagine that the, the transactional nature of work probably is only magnified, you know, in larger, you know, Fortune 500 companies that have been going through this as well. And yeah, it, it, we, have, we have shown that, you know, it can be done, but it is, I do not think it is optimal for most companies to be, you know, fully remote uh, in terms of, of how they operate. So that hybrid model is the more, the more likely piece. Um, you, you've shared a lot of great lessons learned here. So we've got two questions that I like to ask uh, everybody towards the end of our, as we close out here, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever received? Maybe sans your dad, just get your foot in the door, right? <laughs> and uh, what else, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received from a, whether a career, professional, leadership, whatever it may be? Yeah, um, you know, I'd say it was, it was probably about eight to nine years uh, into my corporate career at this point. And I felt like, you know, I had started to plateau, or at least that's what, you know, my perception was. I was frustrated seeing a number of my peers, you know, get promoted and I wasn't and was looking at them saying, well, I'm just as qualified or maybe more qualified, you know, than that person. And it was, um, I was spending an unproductive amount of time thinking about that. Mm-hmm. And I was having a conversation with uh, a vice president of sales who I supported from an HR standpoint and had a good relationship with him and was, was kind of sharing, you know, my frustrations. And he shared with me that, you know, something similar had happened to him earlier in his career. And the advice that someone had given him that helped him get through it was what he was about to give me. And the advice was, you'll start winning when you stop keeping score. So you'll start winning when you stop keeping score. And my initial thought was like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. Uh, (laughs) Because I wasn't in a place where I could really, you know, hear and understand that advice, but it, it stuck in my head and I spent some time thinking about it. And I think the, the point of his advice was, you know, focus on what you can control and what you can influence. You know, you control your performance, you control your effort, and that influences your, your results will then influence what decision makers and others think of you. You can't control or influence who else is getting promoted. So don't waste any, you know, emotional bandwidth on it. Uh, and it ended up um, you know, being some of the most impactful advice I ever received. And part of it was, it was before, it wasn't what I wanted to hear. Like it was what I needed to hear, uh, which I think is also an, an important aspect, you know, of advice. Um, so yeah, um, you'll start winning when you stop keeping score is probably the best advice I've ever received. You just uh, you hit on something that um, I'm a big John Wooden fan. I don't know if you've ever oh, yeah. uh, read any of his I think I don't think he ever read a wrote a book necessarily by himself. He usually had um, this one of these people writing with him, but he had his pyramid of success. He had all these isms, and so I've I've read a couple of his books probably 10, 12 years ago as I was going through kind of a pivot in my career here as well. And, um, being I think 10, 12 years ago, my late thirties at that time, um, and I just w- was on vacation last week, and I read this book. Called, I believe it's called Think Like a Warrior. And uh, it's kind of a hokey book. It's taught as a fable. This college football coach is going through this tumultuous time. And 
when he falls asleep, these old coaches come back and like give him advice on what he should do in his dreams. And one of the first people that visit him in this dream is John Wooden. And uh, as you mentioned that, it made me think about Wooden. One of the things he talked about is that winning is, he didn't focus on winning. It was just a byproduct of attitude and effort. What are the only two things that, that we really have true control over? And I'd probably say a third thing, and he probably labeled it within his effort. But I would put attitude, effort, and developing skills. And in the end, you take that, I'm going to work hard. Um, certainly, you got to balance that with having some sort of life so you can keep working hard. And the attitude of a, being optimistic, and as you mentioned before, if you're going through hell, keep going or whatever that attitude is. So you have control over your attitude and your outlook, control of how hard you work. And I'm sure wouldn't just wrapped up inside there, continuing to build your skills. And then winning will take care of itself because there's so many things that are outside of your control, which just might've been what your boss was saying. If you keep looking around and comparing yourself, that's really kind of out of your control. So just really good advice, Matt. It kind of just hit me as I've been really thinking about um, that piece of advice that was reintroduced to me when I read that book mm-hmm. on education. Um, what is, by the way, speaking of what is a, a, one of the best books that you've read that you would advise uh, our listeners to read? Yeah, you know, it's, it, it, it's an older book and I'm sure a lot of people have, have read it, but um, I've always liked uh, Colin Powell's autobiography specifically for his 13 rules of leadership. Um, Cause I have, I have, Pretty, I think pretty much throughout my career, I have kept a copy of those rules either on my desk or in my drawer and, you know, look at them periodically. Uh, and I think they've all been applicable uh, personally many times in my career. But the one that has really stood out from the past year is, you know, perpetual optimism is a force multiplier. Uh, and I think, you know, to make it through something like COVID, uh, you know, the role of a leader is to you know, I think present that that realistic level of optimism, you know, to help get through a pandemic. And it is, you know, contagious. It really is that that force multiplier. So it's, uh, you know, I think that, you know, his story and especially those 13 rules of leadership, for me at least, are, are timeless. It's great advice, Matt. Uh, you've been a phenomenal guest. As I expected you would uh, with 20, 20 years of, uh, of uh, leadership experience with some amazing companies and in the business of people. Um, and I knew you would have a lot of lot to offer. Thank you so much for, for joining us and providing your insight. Joel, thanks for having me today. I've really enjoyed the uh, conversation and hopefully that the, uh, um, you know, the, the junior military officers and those in transition that you work with will um, take something valuable uh, out of this. And also for anyone listening, uh, if there's anything that's been of, of interest or you'd like to connect more about, feel free to, to hit me up uh, on LinkedIn. Thank you again for listening to the podcast. If you want to learn more about Cameron Brooks, please visit us at our website, Cameron-Brooks.com. We also have our book, PCS to Corporate America, fourth edition, that you can order off of Amazon. If you have any other insights or ideas uh, for Cameron Brooks on our podcast, you can reach out to me directly at my email, which is very simple. It's my first initial, the letter J, my last name, Junker, J-U-N-K-E-R. So jjunker at Cameron-Brooks.com.